Well, thank you, Mike and Karen. I'm looking forward to hearing more about Reach Global and what's going on in Europe. Well, today we're hopefully finishing our Christmas in July series. So, you know, we're really not in a Christmas in July series, but we're in a series on Luke, and of course, many of our favorite Christmas passages come from the beginning of Luke, and so it sort of seems like Christmas. Uh, but today we'll be finishing it up, our last section where Jesus is presented as the Christ for the world. So you can turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, and we'll get there in a moment. But today in Luke, we are going to see that a new day has come. It's the new day in the history of redemption where great salvation is proclaimed in Jesus Christ, and at the same time, there's an announcement and a prophecy of the great division that is going to happen because of this great salvation. We're told in Luke's gospel that Jesus is himself the salvation of God, but he's also the one who would expose the true spiritual realities within each person's heart. And that by calling people to make a decision about who he is, he's really calling people to make a decision about who God is. You know, many people claim to know God. Many people claim to love Him. We might even say most of the people that we ourselves know in our normal course of life say they know God, say they might even love Him. And people come from all sorts of varied religious backgrounds, um, maybe not even religious backgrounds and perspectives, yet can claim to love God. Well, how do we know if a person truly loves God? How do we know if we even ourselves truly love Him? In the scriptures, we understand that we truly love God if we truly love His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the Old Testament testifies to. It's what's all over the New Testament. And it's what's going to be presented to us today in Luke chapter 2, that there's a great promise in Jesus Christ to have our sins forgiven and to have eternal life and hope with God. But there's also a warning that there's a great stumbling that can happen in not accepting Jesus for who He says He is. So later on in the New Testament, for example, our Apostle Peter will write these words in chapter 2, verse 6. For this is contained in Scripture, and he's quoting Isaiah. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him shall not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, and he quotes a psalm, the stone which the builders rejected has become the very cornerstone. And, he quotes Isaiah, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, for they stumble because they're disobedient to the word. Well, let me pray and we'll take a look at Luke chapter 2 this morning. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you are the eternal Son of the Father, that you took upon yourself our human nature, that you offered up your life for ours, the Holy One who saves sinners. And we pray this morning that you would increase our faith in you and that you would give us even more faith in your word as well. And we pray these things for your sake. Amen. So you can turn to Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 21. And my hope today is that we'll all be renewed in our salvation joy, just like the Apostle Peter says, that you'll see that Jesus is of precious value to you. And that you'll learn, we'll all learn, how not to be disappointed in Jesus. In fact, Luke is presenting him as the Christ for the whole world. That's our title this morning. Jesus Christ is God's salvation. He's a light for all peoples, a light bringing revelation 
and glory. And Luke is really in our passage this morning, as you'll see, he's telling the story about the presentation when his parents brought him to the temple and presented him. But through that presentation story, Luke is actually re-presenting to us, to his readers, to everyone who would read the Gospel of Luke, this is Jesus Christ. And then he reproduces two testimonies for us. We have the testimony coming from Simeon, and he really offers a blessing and a dedication of Jesus Christ at this time. And then we have the second story of Anna, Anna the prophetess, who proclaims that salvation is in Jesus Christ. And we have these two testimonies to consider for who Jesus is. Now, our passage today is very easily organized for you. You can see it. Verses 21 to 24 is a very clear introduction to our text. And you'll see at the very end, verses 39 and verse 40, very clear conclusion to the story that's being given to us. But in the middle, in the heart of the passage, are these two testimonies. These, as one commentator put it, these two prophets of piety show up on the scene and tell us who Jesus Christ really is. And of course, the famous words come from Simeon that we know so well. They're central in communicating the burden of our passage this morning, Luke's burden for his readers, God's burden for us as his people today, and that is to see that Jesus Christ is God's salvation, a light for all the peoples, bringing revelation to the world and bringing glory. So first, we'll look at the introduction as we begin and see Simeon's dedication blessing. We're going to simply read the story as it unfolds, so you can experience it that way. Verses 21 to 24, we have the circumcision of Jesus, his naming, and then we get to his presentation in the temple. So it begins, And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now hopefully you've been reading along in the Gospel of Luke as we've been going so far. I pointed out repeatedly all these parallels between John the Baptist and Jesus the Christ and how we go back and forth between these two stories because their lives are so intertwined and their ministry is intertwined. And so even if you go back and look at the story of you know, John's circumcision and naming is, is told to us, but notice how much more space is given to Jesus about it's an extended presentation of his naming in the prophecies. Again, another way Luke is showing us the superiority of the one who would come after the forerunner, Jesus the Christ. And as you'll see in some of your English translations, it'll already say fulfilled. It will said the times have been fulfilled in verse 21. The times have been fulfilled in verse 22. And we've noted how this is like Luke's favorite word so far. In the gospel, the time is fulfilled. The time is fulfilled. He opens his gospel in chapter 1, verse 1 with that, meaning that the history of redemption just keeps on unfolding, and we are now at the crucial point in the history of the world. Now, the circumcision ceremony took place on the eighth day, just as it was established with the covenant with Abraham. And with John, just like with John the Baptist, we have the naming of Jesus here on the eighth day, which is actually unusual uh, at this time for Jewish custom. But perhaps we're supposed to see here not just that Jesus was named on that day, but it's the dramatic revealing of his name. And Joseph and Mary faithfully named their newborn son Jesus, just like they were told to do by the angel. 
And Matthew, in his gospel, tells us the significance of this name. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. That's our greatest need. And then the days of purification, if you're really interested in these kinds of things, you can go read Leviticus 12. And all the details you want, ever want to know about the laws of childbirth in the Old Testament are right there for you. You can read them, but I'll just summarize them. So, but basically, Mary is going to be unclean for seven days before the circumcision. And then after the circumcision, she'd remain at home through the 40th day. And then when that's done, then sacrifices would be offered for purification. More on that in a moment. And you notice it says the time for their purification. This is a way of bringing Joseph into the storyline. The laws of, of purification here only apply to the mother. But they decide to go to the temple as well to, 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 to present Jesus in the ceremony of the redemption of the firstborn. And so this was a practice that was actually established way back in the Exodus when God, if you remember the plagues of Egypt, there were 10 of them. And the last one is he struck down the firstborn of the Egyptians, killed them all. But he spared the firstborn of his people, Israel. And so the ceremony goes back to that time, and it's a way of giving back to God the firstborn. It's a memorial of all that God did for them in saving them. In fact, before the law comes and the priesthood is introduced and all these things, in a sense, the firstborn son was seen as the priest, if you will predicting what would be coming in the, in the Levitical priesthood and, of course, ultimately in Jesus Christ who would fulfill all of this. Now, there was also a price that had to be paid to redeem the firstborn. It was a five-shekel price. It's a token price, but it's a way to remember that God has redeemed his people. And Jesus Christ, then, is uniquely honored here as the firstborn, all the privileges of serving God, his Father. And Luke's focus here is that he's holy to the Lord and draws that out because he's holy, as we've already seen, as Luke has presented us, who Jesus is. He's the Holy One. He's the Eternal Son, the Sinless One who came. He's the Son of God. And Jesus would fulfill all the promises in the Exodus. There's a very predictive presentation that's being made this day because he would bring the ultimate redemption. He would be the full and final priest, and he would give up his life for his people. Again, remember Joseph and Mary are also at the temple to offer sacrifices for her purification. It's supposed to be a year-old lamb and a pigeon or a dove. But if one's unable to afford these two, their allowance is made for people who don't have the money, and they can just simply bring two pigeons or doves and offer it instead, which apparently they did. Now, again, just as a matter of point, it's to know that even though they are offering here the sacrifices of what we considered the poor people, we shouldn't think of Joseph and Mary, like we've mentioned earlier before, as in abject poverty. They're just simply identifying with this class of people. And from history, we know that in practice, it was only really the truly wealthy at this time that would offer up the two lambs. Pretty much everybody else took the lesser route. Well, that's sort of the background to the story, and now we get to the presentation in Simeon and his prophecy in verses 25 to 20, 35. So it begins, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Simeon, we're introduced to him, just like we were introduced to Zachariah and Elizabeth earlier. 
uh, talking about him being a righteous and a devout man. And in other words, he's a model Christian, if you will, to speak about. Good term, actually, because he's going to be the, one of the first ones to hold the baby Christ. And he lived his life in such a way that his spirituality was visible, and faithful, and consistent. And most likely, Simeon is not a priest. Now, there are a number of historical traditions that present Simeon as a priest, but as you can see, the text doesn't say that. So most likely, he's a layman. And he's awaiting, that is, he's looking forward with faith for the consolation of Israel to come. And this is a phrase that very clearly takes us back to Isaiah chapter 40. And in fact, the consolation of Israel is introduced there. And then we hear about this consolation all the way through chapter 66 in Isaiah. The whole rest of the book is about this consolation. And it's all about this servant who would come. This mysterious servant who would be the Messiah. And it refers to the coming age, the messianic age, when there would be full deliverance of sin and the Holy Spirit would be given to God's people in a way that had never happened before in the history of redemption. And it talks a lot about this. In fact, the same word that's used for consolation here is the word in John 14, 16, when Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit being given, your consoler, your comforter. Isaiah 40 begins, Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity has been removed, and that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, of course, as you know, as the history of redemption unfolds, consolation just keeps building, and it changes all these different forms. And there's more consolation for us yet to come in the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, even though we live in the age of consolation, biblically speaking, there is still more to come in our redemption and in our life with God. And hopefully even at this point in our lives, because of your faith in Jesus Christ, you've experienced this real consolation. It's not just simply something intellectual, but the consolation within our souls that we have the Holy Spirit living within us and testifying to our salvation in Jesus Christ. Well, then it seems like Simeon, I mean, he's a, well, such an interesting character because it's like he was handpicked for God for nothing other than just this one job. You know, he's not, most likely not even a priest. He's this, this singular person, and we all know about him because he's recorded in the Scripture. The Holy Spirit is upon him. Holy Spirit reveals to him he's not going to die until he sees the Lord's Messiah. And then from this statement where he says that he won't die until he sees the Messiah, we assume that he's a really old guy. Well, maybe he is, but that's not 100% certain. Well, then we read in verses 27 through 32, um, his, his speaking his hymn of praise to God. Now, you'll notice as this section begins, we'll read it here, verses 27, and he came in the Spirit. That's the third time in, in these two, three verses that the Spirit's been mentioned. And he comes in the spirit to the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So Simeon actually turns this routine presentation into a special full dedication to the Lord. 
I mean, since we know the rest of the story, we are already thinking this is a sort of like a big show that's going on maybe in the temple. But it's not. It's just another couple with another baby, presumably showing up to dedicate to the Lord. And Simeon, you'll notice, you know, Jesus doesn't have a name tag on, that he's Jesus, right? It's the Holy Spirit that leads Simeon to pick him out of the crowd and take him up in his arms and bless God that this is the one, this is the Christ child that God has for us. And his statement here, his song, or his hymn, if you will, is the fourth one. I've mentioned this, you know, before, the fourth hymn in the introduction to the Gospel of Luke. And they're all about great joy because that's another theme of Luke, and they all have Latin names that go with them in church history. This is called the Nunc Dimittis. It just simply means, now depart. Now he can depart. It comes from the very first words of his, his statement in Latin. We had Mary's Magnificat, if you remember her song, when she meets with Elizabeth. We have Zacharias' Benedictus, and we have the Gloria that comes from the, angel, the angels in heaven. Well, there are three couplets here reflecting on the servant Messiah who's here and the great joy there is. In verse 29, he presents himself as a servant of the Lord, that he's now ready to be released from his duty. He was watching for the event, and now that the event has come to pass, he's ready for his next assignment, whatever that might be. But he can die in peace because he's seen the fulfillment of God's word. God's word through the Old Testament prophets and the specific word given to him by the Holy Spirit. And then in verses 30 to 31, the reason is clearly stated that he's seen God's promised salvation, namely Jesus himself. This salvation is performed in front of a large audience. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. Now there's an allusion to another passage in the Old Testament here from Isaiah chapter 52. You can read it on your own sometime, 52.7 and following. But not only does Simeon refer to it, but Anna refers to the same passage as well in her phrases that she says. And it simply says this, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, you watchmen, lift up their voices. They shout joyfully together, for they will see with their eyes when the Lord restores Zion. Break forth and shout joyfully together, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people and he has redeemed Jerusalem. And we will see those two phrases mentioned. And the Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations that the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. And we might be wondering, though, at this point in the story, like, how is it that all the peoples of the world are seeing what's being done? Well, we have to take a much more global perspective. Specifically, they have watched, if they've been watching, through the whole history of the Hebrew people and their history with God in the Old Covenant. By the prophets and his word, their actions and his blessing of the people. In fact, more specifically, predictively, they have the very coming of Jesus Christ into the world. They have this text, the scripture. And of course, ultimately, it's still unfolding as the witness of the apostles to the new covenant in Christ bring to us the New Testament. 
And then there's the extension of the gospel continually throughout the history of the world as the church takes up the same witness. And we proclaim and we join in this. In other words, if they haven't yet seen it, Simeon is saying, well, the gospel's going to come to them very soon. It'll be there very soon. And then in verse 32, we read that he would be a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And so here we see him talking about the ultimate plan of salvation that the prophets talked about where there would be the uniting of Jew and Gentile in Christ as a new people of God. This salvation is light to the Gentiles. It brings revelation to them, to the people who were in darkness and ignorant. That includes most of us. That includes people still around the world who sit in darkness. The salvation is a light that brings glory upon Israel because what they've been hoping for has finally come. He is here. And we're so thankful for that. Now, of course, this image of the light and the glory reaching the very ends of the earth, this is repeated over and over in Isaiah 40 through 66 as well. And you can read those chapters as well. But it's pervasive thought throughout the New Testament that God would bring together these people under Christ from all nations and tribes and languages of the world. You can read about it, especially in Ephesians chapter 2 and 3. But one passage that's not commonly brought up that I thought would be interesting to put before you is Paul's defense before Agrippa. And these are his words recorded by Luke in Acts 26. And so the apostle says, having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both to small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses have said was going to take place, that the Christ was to suffer, and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, that he should be the first to proclaim light, both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. And then we come to verses 33 to 35. And his father and his mother marveled at what was being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Well, Joseph and Mary, I mean, you think about reading the storyline so far, they're just amazed about how the things that get said about their son Jesus. I mean, it seems like everybody they run into has something to say. I mean, think about it. They had Gabriel making the announcement to Mary. Then we had Elizabeth and the, and the prophecy that she gave. Then we had the shepherds showing up and all that they had to say. And it just keeps coming. You got Simeon and then Anna's next. And we should be amazed at, at it all too. In other words, this is, I hope this is a, you, you can follow the momentum of Luke's gospel as we're studying it. In fact, this would be a good time actually to pause and sort of review and just read chapters one and two in one sitting and see the progression of what, Luke is doing and introducing us to his gospel. This is still the prologue. Now, very shortly, we're going to turn, turn a little bit and transition to the ministry preparations that are going to be made for Jesus to appear on the scene in his ministry. But we'll get to that soon enough. But you'll see Simeon blesses them both, and he speaks to Mary that Jesus would be appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel. You see, Jesus, is go- Jesus will divide the nation. Because they're going to face a decision when he shows up on the scene and starts preaching the gospel of the kingdom and starts telling them everything's fulfilled and that everything is fulfilled in him. And he's going to offer up himself and what that would do 
in bringing salvation and full redemption to people. And so many during his lifetime and afterwards, of course, will apostatize, meaning they'll leave because they don't accept this messiahship. And many will find spiritual life. Those are the people who accept his messiahship. And Mary, it said, will be pierced by a two-edged sword. It's a word for a very large sword, emphasizing the severity of the grief that will come upon her as the days unfold because her son's going to make choices in his ministry, humanly speaking, that are going to cause a lot of people to hate him. And ultimately, of course, the grief would culminate at the cross and the crucifixion. We're also told by Simeon here that ultimately Jesus would reveal the thoughts of human hearts because of what they would do with him. And so he would expose the true thoughts of those who are false among the people of God, the rejectors. In fact, you know, there are always pretenders in the midst of God's people. I mean, Jesus taught about that repeatedly as well. They're always pretenders. And so he said, so for example, in John 5, when he's teaching in his ministry, he says, do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whose word you set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, well, how will you believe my words? And in Luke's gospel, starting in chapter 20, but he looked at them and he said, what then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, this has become the chief cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. You see, Simeon's dedication and blessing is full of so many lessons to think about and consider and to apply in our lives. And perhaps he is the best example, if not one of the best examples in the Bible, of what it means to receive Jesus. He took Jesus in his arms, and he blessed God. He blessed God for the salvation. He knew he was the hope of his life, the hope of all the world. Is he your Savior, your Redeemer, your glory? This is how Simeon received him. Second, Simeon also gives us really a first glimpse into the universal mission of the Gospel of Luke. In other words, that this Gospel, this good news, is meant for all the peoples of the world. And it's just beginning, and you'll have to keep your eyes open, but you'll see it repeatedly in the examples that Luke gives throughout his Gospel, that this Gospel's for everyone. And third, it should amaze us, this specific testimony that we read here, that Jesus would be the turning point of the history of redemption and the watershed for salvation and damnation. We will see that how people respond to Jesus, you see, determines their eternal destiny. But Jesus Christ is the salvation that people should be longing for, the light who will bring revelation and glory. That's our first testimony. The second one is much shorter from Anna this morning, and Anna offers salvation to all in him as well. We read about her prophecy in verses 36 to 38, where it says, And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. 
She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayers night all day, night and day. And coming up that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to him of all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So right away we're introduced to Anna. <clears throat> so Simeon's a layman. Anna's a, Anna's a prophetess, and according to Jewish tradition, there were many other women prophetesses, Sarah, Miriam, Deborah, Hannah, Abigail, Huldah, Esther, and of course there are some in the New Testament that are mentioned as well. We don't know anything about her lineage through Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. Maybe all of this is just simply to tell us that she's a faithful believer. And assuming she was married, which would have been typical about age 13 or 14, she would have been a widow from about 20 to 21 years of age for 63 years at this point, being 84. That's one way to read the Greek. It's a little bit confusing. It could also be that she was 84 years a widow, which would then make her about 105. Either way, I think that's fairly old. So she's always in the temple, and she's worshiping and praising and praising God and praying probably for the Messiah who would come. And maybe she had a, a room there, but most likely she had her own place to live, but it's just she was constantly there. That's what she did every day. She would show up there and worship and pray for the Messiah to come. And you wonder why so much background on this person, all these details about her ministry and what she's been doing, her pedigree, uh, her character, and it's all to present to us she's a credible witness. In other words, I mean, the people knew who she was, and she gives a credible testimony. Just like we listen to Simeon, we should listen to her. She too is being led by the Holy Spirit, and she comes up to Joseph and Mary and Jesus and gives thanks to God for his Messiah, and she addresses the whole crowd. And, and to anyone who's looking for redemption, anyone who's longing for that day, and she appeals to the remnant ready to hear, probably going throughout the crowds, telling people about this child for the rest of her days, probably using Isaiah 52 among any other, many other passages where it talks about Break forth and shout joyfully, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people and he has redeemed Jerusalem. If you're looking for that redemption that the prophet Isaiah predicted, well, here he is. She declares to everybody who would listen, and Luke records it for everybody who would read, if you're looking for salvation from your sins, well, here he is. Here is Jesus Christ. Believe in him. Is that what you want? And then the conclusion is pretty simple. The requirements of the law get completed. And Jesus' human development, we have a word about that too, interestingly, in verses 39 and 40. It says, And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. So Joseph and Mary complete. Uh, all the requirements to make this presentation, uh, the redemption of the firstborn, and to offer the proper purification. And they returned to Nazareth. And this is where we started in the Gospel of Luke. Remember, that's where they were at the beginning. And then they come to Bethlehem for the birth and all this stuff that's going on. And then eventually they'll go back. Now, sometimes it's hard to integrate the chronology between the different Gospel accounts here. It's not that difficult. But, uh, but there are a couple options. Because you remember there were some other visitors who showed up, right? The Magi, Matthew tells us about them. And so they could have arrived before they actually went to the, the temple for the ceremony, 
Or it might have been even up to maybe a year after that while they were still hanging around in the city. We don't know for sure. But of course, when they did arrive and they left, then the family flees to Egypt because of Herod's actions, which most likely took place very shortly after this visit. And so then Luke's just simply summarizing for us all of that to get us back to where he wants us. They're up in Nazareth, and he's about to begin his ministry. And we learn that Jesus grew strong physically. He drew, grew wise intellectually. It's just like John, again, these stories are in constant parallel. John chapter 1, verse 80, we learn about how John the Baptist grew up like this too. And the grace and favor of God was upon him, just like it was told to the mother Mary. And we ourselves who read this passage, at this point, Luke has really been strongly emphasizing so much to us the divine nature of Jesus Christ. And here we're just, we find we're just as amazed at his human nature and especially how they could be united in one person. Well, that's where sort of the next episode goes in Luke's gospel. And we'll find, too, that Luke likes to teach us about Jesus' humanity throughout his gospel. And we'll be amazed when we see Jesus in the temple, his father's house, teaching. And then that passage will conclude, and Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature, in favor with God and man. So Anna makes an offer. An offer of salvation to anyone who would listen. Luke takes up her words. And with this passage, he's making an offer to anyone who would listen, who wants salvation from their sins, anyone who would pay attention. Because Jesus Christ is God's salvation. He's a light for all peoples. He brings revelation. He brings glory. He brings redemption and ultimately consolation to the soul. And this morning, by going through Luke chapter 2, we've listened to two trustworthy testimonies. Simeon, as he blessed God and dedicated Jesus to his ministry. And the testimony of Anna, as she gave thanks to God and, and spoke about his redemption, the redemption that there is for everyone in Christ. And they testified to this new day in the history of redemption, a day of great and full salvation. And we've talked repeatedly, I've said the phrase, that Jesus is God's salvation, a light for revelation to all the peoples and glory. Well, let's look a little bit at what Jesus said about being a light. He liked this metaphor about himself as well. In John chapter 12, Jesus therefore said to them, for a little while longer, the light is among you. He's talking about himself. So while you have the light, walk in it. The darkness may not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light in order that you may become sons of the light. And then in John chapter 12, further on, Jesus cried out and said, he who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. And he who beholds me beholds the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world, that everyone who believes in me may not remain in darkness. See, the incarnation of the Son of God in the person of Jesus Christ now forces a decision upon everyone who hears about this, and it causes division by what it reveals, the people who will align themselves with Jesus and the people who will not. And the result of this open division among humanity should not be a surprise to any one of us. I mean, we've experienced it probably firsthand in our lives. And it's a common experience for our Christian brothers and sisters around the world, especially in much more difficult contexts. And it's worth making sure that we incorporate this into our evangelistic message and our discipleship process with people 
that they understand that it's not just all, here's a glorious message of salvation. Oh, it is. But if you accept it, there's going to be division in your household. Your parents may not like it. Your siblings may not like it. Your coworkers may not like your decision you've made. Your spouse may not like it. And it goes on and on. Because division is what Jesus brought when he brought salvation. And so, of course, the key passage, though, in our verse today is Simeon's praise. That he'd be a light of revelation to the Gentiles and glory to his people Israel. And, of course, it takes us back to who we've been talking about in this whole introduction. It goes back to the angel's words to Mary in Luke chapter 2. The angel said, or the the words of the angels to the shepherds, rather, in Luke chapter 2. Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David is born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And then the very centerpiece and the center story of the Gospel of Luke says the same thing. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, the story of Zacchaeus, Jesus says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. Well, let me pray for us. The Lord Jesus, we do praise you that you are our Savior, that you are the Christ, that you are the Lord, that you bring with you comes good news of a great joy of a salvation that's for all the peoples. We praise you this morning for your work of salvation on that cross and in resurrection that is applied to us through the working of your grace and the outpouring of our faith upon you to receive you. May we this morning imitate the faith of Simeon and Anna and others in our passage, their life of devotion to you, their expectancy. For while we don't expect your first coming, we expect your second coming. And we live in expectation of a result that you will return, and when you do, you'll bring the fullness of our redemption and the fullness of righteousness to this world. We pray that you would keep us in that expectation mode. And we pray these things for your sake, Jesus. Amen.